0: and suggest future topics and guests. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are talking to Ajelle Wade, better known as the Toy Coach. Ajelle, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business.
2: Thank you so much for having me here today, guys.
0: So, Agile, to get things started, please tell us about yourself and your career track.
1: Uh, You call yourself the toy coach. I love that. I love to hear about your passion for toys and and how you got into this space. It's fascinating.
2: Sure, sure. So, uh, a long time ago when I was a kid, I knew I always wanted to work with children at first. So, I thought I was going to go into education. And then my sister, who we were talking about before this, who named me, Right. She said, you know, teachers don't get paid enough. Don't go into education. Don't do that. Um, Then I I fluctuated between wanting to be like a child psychologist. And um, eventually I met somebody who attended the Fashion Institute of Technology and she actually studied exhibition design there. So I went and followed in her footsteps and I said, I'm going to do exhibitions, but I'm going to do children's exhibitions. And One of my teachers saw what I was doing and they said, you know, there's a toy design program here. I'd never heard of that before. I didn't think that was a real thing. Uh, But I, I talked to the department head. I applied and I got in and it's a small industry, the toy industry, but it is exciting and so much fun. And I mean, ever since I got into it, it just felt like home.
1: Hey, can you tell us a little more about what you do on a, on a daily basis? As, as the toy coach, are you consulting with companies? Are you? Do you have um, products or brands of your own that you're running? I'm very curious about the ins and outs of that.
2: Sure. So I just started the Toy Coach under a year ago. I'm almost coming up on my one-year anniversary. Before that, I I had a 10-year career in the toy industry where I did design and development for just various brands. I worked for Toys R Us and Party City, a company called Creative Kids, Madame Alexander. I designed dolls and play sets and, and, and even did product development for arts and crafts lines. I managed multi-million dollar lines. Like I did a lot of different things in the industry. So a year ago, when I started The Toy Coach, I decided to go back to my original dream of being an educator and now being an educator of the toy industry. So I, you know, I took what I knew and I, I packaged it up. At first, I packaged it up in a podcast. And then as that podcast was growing and grew, I decided I wanted to actually create a course So I built an online course called Toy Creators Academy, and that course is how I teach and nurture people that want to learn from me and learn the way that I do things or I did things while I was going up through my career. Uh, And so that is my primary focus, teaching them, connecting them to toy companies, helping them pitch their ideas, helping them prepare the right materials to pitch their ideas, connecting them with the right people to protect their ideas, which is how I I found you guys. Um, And... And yeah, so that's what I do on the daily basis. And sometimes I take on clients. Uh, what's nice about being the toy coach is, and doing what I'm doing now is I get to be selective about that. So I get to partner with clients and companies that I really believe in and, you know, and and develop either do social media for them, or I'll do design like product design for them, simple, like plush design or doll design. Uh, or I'll do like social media, like management and development, things like that.
1: That's so interesting. And so can you tell us a little bit about uh, maybe some interesting projects you worked on or some interesting products that you worked on? I'm, I'm just really curious now that you've given us the background and your background more. Um, you know, my kids have these these giant squishmallows. I think we got them at Costco. I don't know who made those, but they're they're great. I mean, we use them as pillows. We use them for target practice when we're throwing them at each other. And there are a lot of fun toys out there. And I love... Um, imagining the kinds of people and the kinds of projects that you've been working on. So if you can fill us in a little more of that, that would, I would love to hear that.
2: Yeah. So, okay. I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is just the the patents that I, I was named on early on in my career. Honestly, it happened for me so early in my career that I didn't even realize how how big of a deal it was until like like eight years into my career that I realized like, oh, having my name on a patent is a pretty big deal. That's a pretty cool thing. But early on in my career, I worked for a company called Horizon Group USA. And one of my first charges was to try to develop product to compete in the um, fashion activity space. So there was a huge trend at the time, not just for like tie dye, but for like screen printing fashions so i had i was part of a small team and our whole focus was to do blue sky new development so i sat down with the jewelry designer for that team and i was like okay you know we got to come up with some ideas and we kind of just riffed back and forth with different ways different products that we could create um she explained to me how jewelry making works i create i took some of what she was saying and tried to tear apart her tools and like like, uh, kind of Frankenstein them together in different ways and say, Oh, if I did this, like, can you still make the kind of jewelry you said you could make? And she's like, yeah, I guess that would work. So that's the kind of like, I guess like kit bashing or, or putting together of work that I did at that company. And, and one of the things I created there was a line called zip screens, which was like a really one-time use fast screen printing, um, applicator where there's like uh, paint inside of this, uh, clear plastic sleeve with a styrene sheet attached to the back of it, so you just tear away the top of the plastic sleeve and then you can squeeze out the paint and the styrene sheet spreads it across the screen. So it was this really fast one-time use applicator and it was really innovative at the time, it was a big deal, essentially it was like a ketchup packet, <laughs> but <laughs> that was one of my first innovations. And then after that it was a five-in-one like bre- friendship bracelet creator to create in that space. And then from there, some of the things that I guess the rest of the world would know is I worked uh, for Toys Russ and I got to work on this brand called Journey Girls. And I was the design director for this Journey Girls brand. And it's it's a it was a premier 18 inch doll line. It's one of the premier, you know, uh, retail store brand doll lines. And I got to do everything as far as like, helping design the fashions for all of the dolls, designing like I'm looking up on my desk, I have like a giant um, bicycle that I designed for one of the dolls, I did a giant like scooter and Vespa. And I mean, it was just nonstop. So it's, it's, it's like maybe more you would know an entire brand I worked on than one specific product.
0: I'm really enjoying this conversation. I want to go back to something you you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, which has to do with with protecting your your creations, right? And how how that's how how you first got in touch with us. So I, I want to I want to follow up on that and ask you about the main issues that aspiring toy inventors, toy entrepreneurs face. Obviously, are at least for us as lawyers the protection of intellectual property stands out as an obvious issue i used to work more directly in the anti counterfeiting ip protection field when i when i lived in in china and and toys were definitely one of the industries in which we did the, the most work I got to go to some really cool trade fairs where I got to see all of the latest stuff and, you know, brought out the inner kid <laughs> for for sure. But let's talk a, about some of the the challenges, right? I mean, we can talk a little bit more about IP protection if you wish, but let us know a little bit about some of the other challenges that might not be so obvious that are nonetheless out there for those who want to enter the industry.
2: Yeah. As far as IP protection, it's, it's so funny because I just had a Toy Mastermind with a bunch of my students yesterday. And one of them is struggling so much because she doesn't know if she should test her game idea before getting the proper IP protection. And she's getting a little bit of, uh, you know, different information from different sources because in the toy industry, especially with games, people are not, you know, you're not getting a patent on your game. You can't patent the, the steps of your game. But you could patent if there's like a functioning tool or like a mechanism that is involved in that game. Right. So not everything that is pitched to a toy company is patented and and not everything that is is shown, like when you share something with your friends or your family so they can demonstrate it, not everybody gets someone to sign an NDA to do that. So her struggle was, you know, how do I know when it's right to to have somebody sign an NDA or when it's right to just share it and show it to everybody so I can get the idea out there? And I think that that is also why I contacted you guys, because that is the biggest struggle with everybody in, in the toy industry. They just don't know when to make that decision. And, and it's really, you know, I feel like it's really just kind of a gut check with who you're sharing your idea with. You don't want to spend too much money protecting your idea up front because it might not be an idea that's... Worth protecting because maybe it's not fully developed, maybe it's not ready to pitch. So, why do you want to invest so much um, in protecting it? But on the other side, like you asked, what are other things that people struggle with? And it's really just that they don't vet or research their ideas enough before they start spending all of this money developing them and protecting them. And uh, people always think that that's like such a simple answer. And of course, people do that. But You'd be surprised. Like I have so many, so many students that have developed an idea that they're really passionate about, and they really believe uh, has a market behind it, but they never did the research. Like the real get down in you know down to the retail stores, talk to the buyers, talk to your ideal target market, and really find out uh, if someone's looking for what you're creating. And it's, it's like heartbreaking to me when somebody comes into my class and I have to go through their product and I have to be real. I have to be like a hard coach and say, listen, I, I see the passion behind your idea. I see it. But I'm telling you from a mass market perspective, it's not going to work because you're not appealing to enough of this toy company's target demographic, or you're not appealing to enough people in general to sell and make this product profitable for you. So definitely what people tend to do the most is just skip that research phase. So I'm very, very big on that research and testing phase of your development process.
1: I'm really curious about the market entry side of this. How difficult is it to develop a product or a toy line or a game and and put it out on the market, you know, indie style, rather than going through the, an established toy company.
2: Yeah, that's very difficult. It's it's very expensive and very difficult. You're you should expect if you're trying to do a custom product with custom molds, expect to be spending fifty thousand or hundred thousand dollars on just making that custom mold, which is the thing that the factory will create to create multiple uh, reproductions of, of your product expect to spend that much just on the mold itself to reproduce your product. And then you're not even talking, then you're not even talking about testing fees and freight fees and ship. I mean, you're just not, it's, it's an expensive undertaking. And that's why I usually do two things. Like if somebody comes to me and they say, I want to be a toy entrepreneur. I don't want to go the inventor route. I don't want to pitch to toy companies. I want to do it on my own. What I suggest is always starting with like paper-based products, and or open market products, because there are a lot of combinations of things that you can create that feel custom, but that aren't actually custom to the point where you have to invest so much of your money up front to create them. So I spent a lot of my career in the arts and craft space. So in the arts and craft space, you're taking mostly open market pieces, which are a lot more affordable, where you're paying like five cents per piece, 20 cents per piece. Um, And combining them into a kit to create something that ultimately, a kit that ultimately will sell for $20 at retail. That's a much more feasible approach for someone just starting out, just because you don't have to have that huge production cost of when you're creating something completely custom. And the the other holdback, when you have a custom mold and you're making a custom product, there's a minimum amount of pieces that you have to order. And that minimum amount is usually gonna be a thousand pieces or more. And you don't know if you haven't tested or made this product or built up this brand, you don't know if you'll be able to sell to a thousand pe- people or more. So it's, it's a really hard undertaking. And I always push people instead of um, trying to go, go it alone you know, and do like a doll, for example, to say, okay, what can you buy open market that's already existing just to test your market, just to try to sell a little bit and see how people uh, respond. Before you invest
1: too deep. So among your many projects, you also have your own podcast called making it in the toy industry. So as fellow podcasters, we would love to hear about your perspectives on this medium. Fred and I are, I still consider us pretty new to this, although we've, we've done, I think over 60 episodes now. So it doesn't feel new every time we sit down, but it is always helpful to hear perspectives from others who are are doing their own podcast. Um, What does the podcast do for you? Where does it fall short? Uh, we'd love to hear your tips on increasing listenership as well. Always relevant to all of us.
2: Yeah, I, I love having a podcast right before I got on this podcast. I was recording my podcast <laughs> literally moments before <laughs> moments. It's a little bit chaotic. Um, I, I would have to say my podcast definitely brings me clients. It brings me students It's a way because people are searching for the things that I'm talking about. Right. So it's a it's a form of sharing that information. It's essentially a blog is essentially what your podcast is. But it's like the new age version of a blog. What I I guess my advice as far as like finding new listeners is Doing things like this, like getting on other podcasts, but also getting any and all other media features. I've done paid promotions for my podcast, but I've also just written articles for other blogs and other things to make sure that to find people in other places and pull them um, back to my podcast. But honestly, for me and my personal experience, which might be different um, from everybody else's, it was just the fact that I was so open with my advice and tips and specific way of thinking, and that I openly provided it all of my podcast without charging for any of it, that I think is how I built my audience so quickly because people uh, from other toy industry organizations saw my podcast as a resource and thereby would share it, right? So for anybody just starting, like creating a podcast of their own, you really have to be kind of selfless with the information that you're giving and and not worry too much in the beginning of how I'm gonna mon- how am I gonna monetize this? Like, really, just you have to be doing it for the right reasons from the get go, and then I, I believe the money will come after.
0: Thank you, thank you for that. Definitely, I mean, I'll, I'll be very candid. Jonathan and I are just um, exchanging uh, some comments here backstage because it, it is very relevant and, and very useful information so you know we're, we're taking that advice to heart before we go any further I, I just want to highlight two other things that that you mentioned that I think are important and, and feel free to go a little bit deeper into into that if you if you want but one thing you mentioned testing I, I think this is something that perhaps is not that evident to the average consumer how much testing is is really required before you can put a toy out in the market right and and this is the sort of less sexy aspects of the business, right? Every every business has them, for example, in our own industry, right? I mean, you can be a, an aspiring lawyer, you want to go to court and then represent people who, who perhaps have difficulties accessing le- legal representation, but you're still going to have to deal with all of that nitty gritty of getting insurance, you know, malpractice insurance and making sure that your bar registration is, is up to date, et cetera. And, and I guess for the toy industry, uh, testing is one of those aspects where I imagine that for most people, it's not the most enjoyable part of the process, but it is an essential one. And if you're working across markets uh, internationally, then you, you you potentially have to to duplicate efforts, right? Because other countries might have slightly different requirements. Another point that I wanted to highlight was molds. For folks who read our China Law blog, where we talk about all sorts of different issues related to doing business in China, molds keep coming up. And again, I can I can sense how some readers feel. Come on, I mean, really, I mean, molds once again, you know, because we we, we really want to hear about some of these new laws that that China's putting out. But this is really important, right? When you're crafting. Uh, manufacturing agreements, right? When you're you're entering into negotiations with a potential supplier, molds are really at the heart of what you're doing. And if you don't pay attention to them, if you don't pay attention to to the specific mold-related issues that you might face, then it would be very easy to end up in a situation where you have a problem. In my own experience, for example, one of the issues that I encountered when going to factories on behalf of clients uh, to make sure that their IP was being protected involved issues with molds. Sometimes you'd have piles of relatively recent molds, maybe not the current season, but you'd have molds from the previous season and two seasons before that lying around. And in some cases, the factories would say, look, you don't understand how difficult it is For us to get rid of a mold it's not that easy to recycle it in this particular country where where we are it's not that easy to deface them and we can't repurpose them so it's important to to think ahead and to come up with solutions and to perhaps build these realities into the business plan not only because of these issues but also as you pointed out the the costs associated with them so feel free if you have anything else to add to um to share that with us but i'd like to just incorporate this into the, the next question that 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 we had for you which has to do with China obviously if we have a China law blog that tells you a lot about our our focus as a as a law firm but the truth is it in almost every podcast we end up going back to the general issue of, of China. So I know you have uh, some experience with with, with China. Uh, I think it would be impossible really to be in your space and not not have it given everything that's going on. So we'd love to hear about your general impressions of the country, experiences that you've had, both good and bad, uh, perhaps tips that, that you might have for others who might be about to to have those those interactions, maybe something you've learned uh, along the way having to do with China.
2: Mm, that's a, that's a big question. Interesting. I have, it's so different. It depends on the. So my career was very corporate in the in the beginning half. So my experiences in China might be different from somebody who's starting as an entrepreneur because you go able to spend less money than if you're traveling with a big company, right? So. When I first traveled, um, I spent most of my time in Hong Kong and in Hong Kong, I think it's like Modi road. There are a lot of toy companies in the buildings, like right across the street from what is the Shangri-La hotel. So I spent my very first toy trips, a lot of just time crossing the street, essentially to go into showrooms, meet with toy companies. They would bring samples from the factories to me at this Hong Kong location. So I could review the samples, make comments and and send it back. Um, From that experience, I would say I learned a great deal just to rely on um, the partners I was working with at the time. It depends on who you end up working with, of course, you should vet them, you should know if they actually have done this kind of work before. But I I, I realized back then that I was trying to take on a lot more responsibility than I needed to because I had a really informed team of of like product managers and factory managers in China that knew that understood what I was trying to do and could offer valuable feedback and make changes and all I had to do was tell them what I wanted to achieve and they could figure out the hows it was going to happen. Uh, The the most important thing when you're when you're doing that, when you're trying to when you're trying to go to like your factory in China and say, this is what I want to achieve. Show me how to do that. You have to give them parameters, because if you say, um, I want to make this like, I don't know, if you say, like, I want to make this 50 percent smaller, but you don't give them the parameters that you have to maintain the same material Um, They might change the material because when you make an item smaller uh, there, you maybe want a less dense material or something. I don't know. Um, So like I would just say when you give comments to China, be very specific about what you're asking for. If you ask for a change, you have to make sure that you make it clear that that change cannot affect X, Y, Z. This change cannot affect the color. This change cannot affect the size. If this change will affect the color or the size, please let me know and we have to figure out another solution. So that that's like number one. Um, then when I started traveling a little bit later in my career and I worked for smaller companies, the the travel got a lot more, it was just a lot more extensive. And I ended up going into mainland China a lot more. And I, I mean, I would just say for a toy entrepreneur who might be doing that for the first time, like just be ready to be surprised and maybe to feel a little bit uncomfortable about the work that you're doing. Cause I have to say, in my experience, when I saw like what the, you know, what the conditions are at the factories and in the towns and the neighborhoods, you can't help just be being human and feeling like what am I doing? (laughs) Like, what am I creating here? You just look at the situation and, and you're coming in and you're saying like, this pink isn't pink enough. And then you look around and you're like, does this pink really matter considering the condition of this factory or this home or like whatever? So, I mean, I would just say that's, that's the one I had a little bit of a moment, one, one or two times when I traveled and I went into mainland China where I just felt am i doing the right thing and i do think those those feelings are why i wanted to shift from working working cuz all my career is like very like large scale like we're doing mass quantities we're doing like 10,000 20,000 units in order but now what i'm doing i'm focusing on like the individual toy entrepreneurs who have who have missions for their product they're not just creating product to create another product to get another sale they're creating product to give um, to help with children's anxiety, to give Black girls more confidence, they're creating products to teach kids math, and there's a lot more. Um, there's just like meaning, really strong meaning and passion behind it. So just be ready for that experience if you travel as an as an entrepreneur.
0: Really enjoying the, this conversation. There's a lot of strands that I'd like to to pull there, but but there's one in particular that I want to make sure we we address this, as you pointed out, you know. To, manufacturing in China will bring with it issues. Um, There will be good moments, but there there will also be frustrations. There will be those moments of weirdness. There will be those moments when you question the wisdom of, of having embarked on the project in the first place. But that leads me to a question, by way of introduction, point out that I've read over the past year or so about different, there's been different developments here in the United States geared at offering manufacturing alternatives in the United States, right? Obviously, there's an effort to, to bring back manufacturing on a large scale, but perhaps at the more artisanal level, if you will, I've read, for example, I'd have to dig this article up, but I remember reading, I believe, about the surfboard industry and how they were, you know, about someone who had a workshop in California where, where people who who wanted to work and, and you know, not necessarily make you know millions of, of, of surfboards a year but if they were sort of small scale they had access to, to to these facilities and it seems to me and this this could just be a reflection of my ignorance but it, it seems to me that that the toy sector might be particularly uh, well suited for, for some of that in the sense that perhaps because of the scale involved the size of the products, The need to really take into account quality standards, things of that sort, you know, where you really want to be on top of things. So let me ask you, do you know of any such opportunities for for entrepreneurs in the toy industry to make product in the United States or or more generally to have you seen any movement in that direction toward more toy manufacturing in the U.S. and more opportunities for um, entrepreneurs to to get their products made here at home?
2: Yeah. One site that I referenced in, I believe, like episode four of my podcast is Maker's Row. I think there's also one called Thomas Net And these are usually, well, US-based for sure. I'm not sure if they have anything, any domestic elsewhere, like in the UK, but US-based factories that you could reach out to. I've used Maker's Row to find factories to produce clothing, actually, because I was working on a clothing line at the time. And I do have students coming to me asking, oh, can we work with domestic artisans to produce our product? I built into my course like the process that I used. I used at the time I was looking for someone to sew. So I found a domestic seamstress based in New Jersey who could create products for me. And it worked really well. So I teach that whole process inside my course. But the problem is like just scaling. You can't really scale when you use a domestic manufacturer and then the other problem is obviously just pricing with toys you know parents are used to paying a certain amount for a certain amount of quality and just everything in the us is so much more expensive so it would depend on what you're creating but it you know if if, if having it made in the U S is going to cost you like 30% more, you're not going to be able to make any profit off of it. And then testing it in the U S is going to cost you more and just shipping it around the U S even for testing or, or whatever is, is going to cost you more. So what I'm seeing is actually people I think are going to like Taiwan instead of going to back to the U S. Uh, but yeah, I, I know people want to, I just don't know how realistic it is once you, are trying to make more like five hundred pieces. I don't know how realistic that is.
1: And I suppose it would depend on I'm thinking about 3D printing, right? Whether you have the type of product that you can utilize with a, you know, a home or an industrial size 3D printer you know if you can set that up there i can imagine that there will be industrial parks that will cater to that as the as that industry continues to mature but that's one piece of uh, of the components right i mean if we're talking about a board game maybe you can make the meeples but you can't make the board right and so there'll be there'll be other components of course of that but interesting input
2: well yeah with the board game i think you can do it with the board board games are actually different conversation like board games are already manufactured in at least canada and some are done in the u.s because like paper-based goods you can definitely get that done here but the other concern is if you're creating something with a 3d printer is it gonna pass testing because like one of i mean one of the basic tests i'm just thinking about is the drop test and like something 3d printed will not pass the drop test so so that's the other issue like the quality of what you're having made here in the u.s you can't really take shortcuts
1: So we're going to leave the toys behind for a second because Fred and I understand that you are a salsa and bachata dancer and performer.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) And I am also a lover of ballroom dance. My wife roped me into it when we were dating 20 years ago. And uh, and it turns out I love it. I'm not particularly great at it, but I, I do enjoy it. So I'd love to hear more about um, about dancing, you know, about your the type of dancing you're into for listeners who, who don't know this, who aren't familiar with it. Why should they get into it? And, and any, you know, favorite artists or songs that would help people get into these genres?
2: Mm, ooh, okay. Um, well, I too roped my significant other into dancing. So good on your wife. but I yeah I've been dancing salsa bachata actually I started after a car accident I had back pain that wouldn't go away and then I started dancing and the back pain went away so there's another reason you should start dancing it also burns like 500 calories an hour and I got real skinny real quick when I first started dancing so another reason you should start dancing Um, but also it's really good for your brain and for memory Uh, I love, so I started with salsa and I took classes and just kind of learned with friends. And then we would go out every Wednesday and dance. And then I learned bachata and then I joined a bachata dance team and I traveled all over the U S and honestly, even the world, we went to like DR to perform. And I would also bring, I have a costume company on the side of all my other things. and I would bring my costume company clothes and sell them at these dance events. And then I would dance at these dance events. And I mean, it's a great way to just let off steam, to meet people, to feel good about yourself, to feel good about your body and in control of your body. And for me, I had back pain, like from a car accident that just vanished once I started dancing and will come back if I stop dancing for too long. So uh, it's just, I mean, what what the doctors have said is I'm probably just building up the muscles around where the injury is. So that's what's happening. But I mean, it's fantastic. I think if you feel like you can't do it, you could start with like bachata. It's very simple. And then you can just like ease your way into salsa. I never thought I would want to perform. And even performing, I I get so freaked out every time I have to do it. I get very nervous. I shake. It's horrifying. I always like, I feel like I'm going to throw up. It's terrible. And I tell people, I'm like, why did I do this? I don't want to be here. And then I get out there and I mess up, but it's still great fun. And it's, you know, it's, it's really nice to see the videos of yourself pushing your body to do amazing things. And I, I would recommend dance highly to anyone. It's a great, great outlet.
1: So many subtexts there, including <laughs> don't let a good opportunity go to waste. Right. I mean, it, you're you're going to I, I like going to comedy clubs and I love it when when they announce. Also, I'm selling T-shirts or I have other swag I'm trying to sell. I mean, that that's a great opportunity. It, you it, Part of being a great entrepreneur is thinking. What else am I missing, right? Where are the, where is the slack in my line and where can I add another product, another service and, and really, um, you know, fill your whole, your whole value chain in whatever you're doing. Even if it's something you're doing just purely for fun or for the love of what you're doing, there's no harm in thinking creatively about how you can expand your business into, uh, into something else that, that makes
0: sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: One of my best friends whom I met when I was living in China, he's now back in the U.S. But for a while, he was a Latin dance uh, instructor. And one of the cool things about, about seeing him build up that business and, 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 and sort of maintain it for many years was the transformative effect entering that entire world had on on many of his students and and keep in mind this is in 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 south china you know not 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 miami or place in europe right this this is a place where for for a lot of his students it was a big deal you know to be well just exposing themselves to to the culture and the music of other parts of the world to engaging in that particular kind of of dancing right with a little bit more physical contact than uh than, than they're accustomed to and it was it was really really cool to see how there was that that effect that that went beyond you know the the fitness component of it and the the social component although that was an important part of it but also just in terms of of their self esteem you know just a way that his students began to feel more comfortable being with people from different countries and and participating in these social gatherings that were a little bit different to to what they were used to so so it can be a real gateway to to all sorts of, of growth beyond the actual technical expertise always get to to hear about that world
2: i have to say um i love traveling internationally and then dancing salsa with someone i can't really talk to it's like it's this cool unspoken language where we can have a connection and we can communicate without communicating it's amazing it's so cool
0: I'm sure there's more of this now than than back in the day i'm sure by now the resources are, are much greater but i remember this would have been at least a decade ago i had a friend up in beijing who was the beijing correspondent for some worldwide website that essentially served as a database you know for people who you know you're you have a business trip lined up you're going to wherever uh bangkok or you know johannesburg whatever like where can i go where are the the places that have you know Latin dancing on which dates, and uh, and I was really surprised at how many uh, you know the amount of information there and the fact that you know even some random place where you would not again not Miami not not Paris you know you'd you'd, you'd look up a place like Hong Kong for example and there would be something pretty much every night. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was a real eye opener. I imagine that by now there must be entire uh, apps <laughs> devoted to finding this. But yeah, just what you what you describe, right? I mean, and this is something that you know m- my friend would always point out. If you go somewhere, you, you you find yourself alone in a in a strange city. It's a good way of doing something social, meeting some people in a relatively uh, safe and, and healthy context, right? I mean, yeah, you can always go to a bar, you can always uh, do that sort of thing. But if you don't know the city, right, you don't know what you're getting into. Whereas if the link is dancing, then you have a pretty good idea of the crowd that you'll be running into, right? So it's also a controlled way of just making the most of your, your international travel. Ajell,
1: it's been great having you on the podcast. We absolutely have loved it. Uh, Learning more about the toy industry, uh, about dancing. uh, It's been a lot of fun. and We always love to end our podcast with recommendations for our listeners, just something to expand their horizons a bit, and and Fred's and mine as well. So we'd like to know if you have any recommendations for us, something you've read, something you've watched, something you listened to lately that you think is interesting or educational or, or whatever.
2: Mm -hmm. I, I am a huge fan and supporter of uh, Amy Porterfield's online marketing made easy podcast. I've learned everything I know about online marketing (laughs) from this podcast. Um, and yeah, it's, it's an incredible tool. It helped me start my business. So I would recommend it tenfold.
0: Fred, what do you have for us today? My own recommendation today is the movie Dunkirk. And the reason why I'm recommending that is just this morning, I started listening to a new podcast recommended by Dan Carlin, who's one of the greatest podcasters out there in my in my opinion, you know, he he recommended this particular podcast on Twitter and I began to listen to it this morning and I so far great, but I don't want to go ahead and make that recommendation on, until I've actually listened to it. But the topic of this particular podcast, you know, sort of got me thinking about different movies and and including Dunkirk as i finished uh exercising i sort of switched from the from the podcast to the soundtrack you know suddenly i felt like like listening to that but um i thought about the movie a little bit it's just it's just really well done and um might as well go ahead and and, and make that my my recommendation if you haven't seen the movie it definitely loses a lot when you watch it at home as opposed to watching it in the uh, in the big screen but you know, the more I think about it, the more I the more I realize, well, it's just just really well done, really, really hits the the right notes. So, yeah, Dunkirk. What about you, Jonathan? I'm recommending something
1: apropos our discussion about manufacturing. This is an article from a few months ago in the Utah Business Magazine called Manufacturing Costs Are Rising. And behind this uh, innocuous title is great information for companies that are dealing with overseas manufacturers. This was written by a friend of mine. His name is Jared Van Orden, and he is a foreign exchange expert, works for a, a company in Salt Lake. And he writes this article talking about these currency fluctuations and how currency fluctuations really matter, especially when you have regular streams of payments that are going abroad. And... Uh, uh, What I learned from having lunches with him is that a lot of companies that are in foreign exchange, you know, banks can offer foreign exchange services, but they often charge a premium. So if you go to a boutique foreign exchange company, they will not only save you a couple of percentage points on on your currency exchanges, but they will also uh, give you a free analysis. Right. They will they will pitch you on their services and tell you this is how we're going to save you money. And some of them even have great software that will help you see see the savings on your own. So I was compelled, you know, I'm I'm a a creature of efficiency. And so if you can save uh, even a couple of basis points, let alone a couple of percentage points on your international payments, uh, it's going to add up. And these types of companies that have these uh, boutique foreign exchange services can help you figure out the strategy, but also execute on your on your strategy as well. So highly recommend it. This article will give you it's not a long article. Uh, it will give you some good insights into why it matters. And uh, I think uh, it speaks for itself. Manufacturing costs are rising. Ajelle, before we end, we'd love for you to tell us where can our audience find your class? Where can they find your podcast?
2: Yes. If you're interested in Toy Creators Academy, head over to toycreatorsacademy.com to join the waitlist. Next class is in September. Uh, but if you want to just learn more about me, uh, head over to Instagram and look for at the toy coach, that's where I hang out the most. And you'll get linked to my website, which is the dot I'm the toy coach everywhere.
0: And the podcast, is there a link to that at the website or?
2: Yeah, of course. There's a link to that at the website or just the I bought all the domains. So there you go. There you go.
0: <laughs> that's smart. That's smart.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you again. We've loved having you and hope we can check in again later and and hear more about what's going on in the industry.
2: Yeah, sure thing. Take care, guys. Talk soon.
1: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.